mean, it's, it's an interesting question because a lot of what I do in terms of concept design for film has kind of evolved, and it's actually gotten a lot more thorough. And I was very fortunate to work with George Lucas in designing the original, um, you know, episodes one, two, and three, because he was the one who kind of set up the template for future art departments, and he felt that it was very important to have designers like myself start working the minute he's starting to write. And he liked that because it was a very collaborative medium where I could inspire him by the artwork that I was creating. Likewise, I would be inspired by him by the words that he was writing. And so working back and forth, when I would create an image, it might spark an idea for him. He would throw something back for me. It was really wonderful. And he insisted that you know the art departments for Star Wars, for example, uh, the art directors and the artists always start on day one when he's you know writing, and that's very unusual. And the only parallel that I can find is when he was designing the original trilogy with Ralph McQuarrie and Joe Johnston. And the designs that we create are we're really trying to help the director and the writer visualize the film. And it's so abstract at that point because they're just vague ideas. And so our job in those early days is to really put down on paper help to spark the imagination of the writer. In this case, it was George. With other filmmakers uh, since then, it's served the same purpose. And concept design, I think, is so critical. I mean, it's something that perhaps is underappreciated because it sets the template. It sets the aspirational goal for what the movie should be. And often, those aspirational visions create sort of the ideal vision of what the movie is. And then once you bring in the reality of schedules and times and budgets, that aspirational vision starts to you know, get lowered and lowered. And so we, that's why we always try to set that aspirational bar as high as possible, because we know from that moment on, it's going to be lowered down. And so for all the films that I work on, we set it as high as possible. Star Wars fans and Move Milkers everywhere, welcome to episode number 213 of Blast Points is Jason. And this is Gabe. And we're talking the art of the rise of Skywalker. It is finally here. Yeah, I don't think there has been a book I look forward to more than this one, or at least a Star Wars art book that had more anticipation than Rise of Skywalker? Well, this one was definitely a tease since we were all ready to get it when the movie came out, and then all of a sudden it got pushed back a few months, which hadn't happened for any of the other ones. So there was like double double anticipation, and then just the wondering of, well, why did they push it back for? What's that? What does that mean? 
what secrets are in this book that they couldn't release it on the same day as the movie. And the movie itself just begged that look into the creative process where I think for so many people after you saw it, or at least after you saw it like a few times, you were kind of like, well, what, what happened? And <laughs> where did this come from? <laughs> yeah. And when did it happen? And what was the process like? Because we all knew following along about the Trevorrow version, Duel of the Fates, as we now know it was. And then shortly after Rise of Skywalker came out, all that concept art for Trevorrow's version leaked out. And then the entire script leaked out. So you got like a whole look at how that movie was coming along. And then you were it was always kind of a weird thing. I remember in our episodes leading up to The Rise of Skywalker, we were always like, how are they going to do this? Like, <laughs> this movie's, they got to start filming really soon. Yeah, because they, they didn't have much time. And they already had the unenviable job of outdoing Return of the Jedi as an ending to a saga of sagas and whether return of the jedi is your favorite or your least favorite i don't think anyone disagrees that it's one of the best endings of anything of any movie movie series like it's what it needed to do to end the original trilogy and and guess now ultimately end all six movies like it's a really solid ending and the fact that they were brave enough to well, no we're gonna end again that was a, there was enough like oh well, how are they going to do that what are they going to do to to out return the jedi return the jedi and then when yeah they were down to any time like what did what does it say in the book they had two years to do this one as opposed to three years for force awakens and three and a half for last jedi they had two years and three months to do everything for the rise of skywalker compared to three years for the force awakens and three years and four months Ryan Johnson had for The Last Jedi. So a considerably less amount of time to pull it off and to pull off something as giant as a Star Wars movie. Well, not just any Star Wars movie. The last Skywalker Star Wars movie. Not just Episode Nine, but the end of the Skywalker saga. These were the questions we were asking. We were wondering all along. And the great thing that that uh, author Phil Sostek does in all of these books that he did, he did the the art of Force Awakens, the art of Last Jedi, and this the Rise of Skywalker, is he combines the the traditional Star Wars art book, which we say every time we do an art of Star Wars book episode. It's the longest tradition in the Star Wars movies that's still going on, the art books. But he he combines them with a Rinsler level of behind-the-scenes information that you get nowhere else. So the fly on the wall, you're reading about the creative process as it happened, which, as amazing as like the prequel and original trilogy art books are, they don't have that. They don't have the text that, that Phil Sostak gives the, the sequel trilogy books, and they're just... They're phenomenal, and we've said many times, it's so far the most we know about how these movies were put together and constructed. <laughs> Except for, you know, the director in The Jedi gave us a little bit, but even Phil's last Jedi book was even more in-depth. Yeah, it's really great to see the art, but also get the context of 
what was going on with the story and the cast and the crew and the behind the scenes stuff and, and kind of, yeah, putting a timeline to the pictures and really getting a feel for the process of just going from the idea and the starting to filming to post-production of kind of how the, the art changed and what they needed to draw, what they needed to paint, what they needed to design, just how fluid that process is. And the context really helps. And how much the the art influenced the story and the story influenced the art and just the whole giant rears the lost Ark ball coming down, chasing Indiana Jones out of that place is kind of the, the production of the movie being made and everyone just running out of its way and doing everything they can. Well, and it's always fun to see that even six years into Disney star Wars now that, even though different people are making the movies that the core star Wars movie process is the same and is very similar to kind of what they did on the original trilogy and really went into with the prequels of starting the art department early and the art department being almost co-writers of them pitching ideas visually that get incorporated into the script. And then also the director's, asking for things and then sending it back to the concept art and just how collaborative the creation of a star Wars movie is and really how art driven that process is even more so than words on a page. It's all about visuals and then turning that into a story. And and going back to the, the original trilogy and the prequel trilogy, these art books are endlessly fascinating because especially for people like us, because they show all the th- hundreds and thousands of what ifs and roads that almost got taken and people will debate until the end of time that, well, if they would have done that, that would have been, that would have made for a better movie. And <laughs> Jar Jar should have had a dog. Yes, he should have. <laughs> he, still can, he still can. He might have a dog right now. That's the other great thing with these is just because it wasn't in the movie doesn't mean it doesn't already exist in the star Wars universe somewhere and just hasn't shown up yet because if anything we've learned over the years that there's a lot of stuff that isn't in these books that may end up in another show or movie. And there's a lot of things that are in these books that may end up in the Cassian show or the Obi-Wan show or a Mandalorian season or whatever the next animated thing is, or the next live action movie like star Wars art never dies. And the what ifs become ifs eventually a lot of them you know flipping through this book i think for a lot of people it's it's the same as the the skywalker legacy documentary i think if you are a fan of the rise of skywalker you are gonna people are gonna flip through this book and be completely justified in their opinion and say well yes it was a fitting tribute to all nine films and here's the proof and if, and if the movie didn't work for you, for whatever reason, somebody would flip through these pages and see, like, see, this paragraph right here explains why the whole thing was a mess from day one. <laughs> but but also, just like the, the, the Skywalker legacy documentary, no matter what your opinion of the movie is, you can't deny flipping through this book of the amount of talent and hard work and care that the artists and the people working on this film put into it no matter what you think of the story or how things ended up there is some absolutely incredible artwork 
in this book, as usual. The Star Wars art department, maybe I'm biased, but I think it's got to be the best out there. <laughs> yeah. If there's any constant in the Star Wars production of all the movies is just they get the best of the best artists they can find and the and push them to do their best work. And yeah, you could make 15 movies from the unused concept art from just one of the now 11 live action movies. This is it the fifth new Star Wars film in this this new Disney era? And I I feel like especially flipping through this book, we are seeing I think much like, you know, like in that documentary, like Scanlon's Creature Department or anybody working on these films that have worked on all of them or some of them or whatever, is now in full swing. Like you, this is an art department at the height of its powers, at full strength, full confidence. It's a well-oiled machine. They know what they're doing. Like this era's visual language you can flip through this book and kind of say like, they know now where what Star Wars in this era is. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting going through reading the text as well, too, is seeing how much the art department was jumping between films. Like, you know, in the old days, it would be they would all be working on Phantom Menace and then they would all work on Attack of the Clones and then they would all work on Revenge of the Sith or they'd all be working on Return of the Jedi. We're here. They're finishing, some guys are finishing up Last Jedi and then moving on to Solo and then immediately moving back on to Rise of Skywalker or coming from Rogue One. And like, I think there's a part about the guys doing the, like the UI designs for screens and how they had a look for Force Awakens and then they came up with a new look for Rogue One. And then JJ came on and they thought JJ would want his look from Rogue One or from Force Awakens, but he really liked what they did on Rogue One. So they took the look of the UI designs from Rogue One and brought that into Rise of Skywalker. Like it's there, they really are a machine. It, it seems like at this point and just jumping from project to project, they're working on Mandalorian at the same time. Like it's pretty impressive. The amount of just art that they're churning out. Yeah. And all of it, it always just makes me think, well, what are, so what are they working on now? <laughs> like, what, now we're in this, we know Mando season two and there's Kenobi and Cassian and stuff, but it's like, ah, oh, I know you're working on other stuff too. What, what, what else you got? Yeah. It's like all the art in this book is so old at this point. During one of our art meetings, I was presenting to George uh, a bunch of designs. He came in the room and very quickly looked at the whole board and right away identified the you know two or three that he really liked, not the one that I liked. And I finally had the courage to say, okay, well, why did you pick those instead of this? And he said, well, Doug, you know, the designs have to live by themselves. When you see them on the screen, you're not going to be there to explain what it is. The audience has to connect with it right away. You have to know its personality. You have to know its function. You have to know where the pilot sits, which direction it's going. All those things in less than three seconds. And if you can do that in a design without any explanation, the design will be that much more powerful. So, okay, overall thoughts. We, we've, we've been able to spend some time with this book. Gabe... What are, what are your thoughts on the art of The Rise of Skywalker overall, before we start getting into the nitty-gritty? I mean, it's a, it's a Star Wars art book, and they're all fun to look at. I, I will say it is kind of funny, like you were saying, of like kind of what your feelings of the movie kind of filter into the book. Because starting the book with The Last Jedi art of Luke and the end of the movie that we didn't get in The Last Jedi book kind of put me in Last Jedi mood, and I was like 
feeling good. And then, you know, you turn the page to Rise of Skywalker and then I'm kind of all those feelings come back of, oh, <laughs> it's the same as the movie. There's, you know, there's parts I really like and parts that are kind of weird. And looking at the art, it kind of gives you the same feelings. But it's great to see all the, like you said, the what ifs and kind of getting some of the thought process behind some of the decisions that they did that did make their way into the movie. And it's always great to, to see that stuff doesn't necessarily come out of nowhere and that there was a lot of, of thought and care in coming to some of the conclusions that they did. Yeah. I, I feel the same way where I, I love this book. These books are absolutely essential, at least for me, I think. And the only thing for me that I thought was odd with this book is when you get to the end, the amazing text talks about that filming has begun and everything but and you get all this incredible behind the scenes stuff of the development of the story but there is zero mention of palpatine not once he's not even in the glossary in the end maybe i kind of get there's no palpatine art although we all thought that's why the book was being delayed because out of fear of spoilers and we're well, I, I think we even said in a show like well maybe when it comes out maybe because they want to put the palpatine art in but palpatine wasn't in the visual dictionary what he looked like and he there's zero art for palpatine or anything at all on exegol in this book like nothing and even in all the story development stuff there's no mention of ray palpatine in any of it i i get it where it's like well if the book leaks early, you don't want a spoiler or something. But also, it's it's April now. And we're potentially not going to get another art book for, like, the next movie in the Skywalker Saga. We'll be like, if there was an episode 10 coming in a couple years, we'd be like, oh, well, it'll just be in the beginning of episode 10 book. And it's just kind of, even in the development of the story, I mean, that's the one thing that I think most people probably walked out of the theater kind of scratching their heads over where it's like well what was up with all that how's that make sense is it you get a lot of information about how they developed babu frick and the beats of the story and stuff like that but there's no mention of any of that and it's it kind of left me kind of like huh yeah it is it is strange and it's it's frustrating because like you said we're not going to get necessarily i mean we don't think we're getting another art book and of the stuff in the movie that I enjoyed as much as maybe it was weird to bring Palpatine back. I loved looking at him on screen and hearing his voice again. And I love just how ridiculous the design of bringing him back and attaching him to a giant robot arm and all that. And like, that's the stuff I kind of want to, I want to see all those sketches in the art book because that was one of the parts of the movie that I just really enjoyed. And yeah, it's kind of frustrating that it's not in there because there's not an, another book to have it in. Like at least we got our, the the end of the last Jedi stuff with a little bit of the Luke stuff and the Yoda stuff. So yeah, it was kind of a strange decision and they weren't afraid to talk about that stuff in the Skywalker legacy documentary. There's talk about Ray Palpatine and, and bringing Palpatine back. So it is odd that, I mean, I guess maybe, yeah, with printing, they have to print it so far in advance. They didn't want that to leak out, but it wasn't like Palpatine wasn't, revealed at celebration so even if they didn't want to get into you know ray being related i it's still odd there isn't yeah concept art but there's still there's still not concept art of the nemodians in the prequel book so 
It's not it's not unprecedented. Well, it's not like Palpatine had a shockingly different look. He came on screen and was kind of just like, oh, he was on a robot arm, but it's like, oh yeah, it, that's Palpatine. He's got milky eyes, but I don't know, it's and it's odd. And it's odd it's not mentioned in the text at all cuz it's kind of an important part of the story. <laughs> yeah, and I think that it is something that people I think and it's not just, you know, people that want to complain about the movie. I think people that enjoyed the movie Equally, we just want to know what what was the story with that? When did they decide to bring Palpatine back, and and kind of what was that process like of of integrating him into the story? Because it's hard to know with it not being in here, but it it feels like it was something that happened later in the story process, based on what's in the book. We'll never know. Nobody knows. <laughs> Secrets only the Sith knew. I guess <laughs> it's so secret. It can't be in the book. That's how secret it is. Right. Those pages are on Exegol in the temple. So that's a really interesting challenge that we have is when we're designing for these, we'll play with a lot of different ideas. And that's because, you know, concept art, it's, it's very quick and we can explore a lot of different things before we actually hit the bigger budgets of actual set construction. And so often we're asked to, okay, you know, we like this idea, but let's play around with some variety to see if that is the absolute best idea. And so often we'll design something, we'll have a, a placeholder for like, this is what it should be. Now let's explore. And I love working with directors that will push me, you know, and, and as far as possible, because sometimes I don't quite know if that's the best design. And I love collaborating with a director who has a vision, who will say, okay, that's great, but let's try this and this. And often what I find is that even if we come back full circle, back to the original design, we will do all this exploration and homework and then we can feel very confident that the design that we end up with that ends up on screen is the absolute best design. Um, There are other times where we will overthink a design, where we will redesign it and redesign it and kind of like almost beat it to death in some ways. All right, so let's get into, before we get into some of our our highlights of the, the art in the art of the Rise of Skywalker, let's go through some of the amazing text because this is is really fascinating how they map out how, how Phil maps out the creation of the Rise of Skywalker. So, one of my favorite parts right away in like the first thirty pages. I know we were texting about this on Tuesday when the book came out on May twenty first, two thousand fourteen, a week after filming begins on the Force Awakens, Lucasfilms. IPDG Group, which is an informal intellectual property development group formed by Kiri Hart. They're having a meeting where they're going over, okay, so the story is locked in for episode seven. What is going to happen for eight and nine? And in this dream team is Filoni, Pablo Hidalgo, our Valentine, John Knoll, the Grand Wizard, Dennis Murin, Skywalker Sounds, Gary Rydstrom, and the Senior Vice President of Physical Production, Jason McGatlin, and Phil Sostak, taking notes. Thank you, Phil. <laughs> Thank you for not passing out. And, I, and it seems like Doug Chang is in there, too, because he, he's given quotes later. But I, this part really blew my mind because they're kind of mapping out the rest, and they're talking about the idea of Leia in 8 and 9, and the whole idea that... They're talking about Yoda saying the Yoda Obi-Wan thing in Empire with that boy is our last hope. And Yoda's no, there is another. And what if the idea is Yoda is talking about Leia, which we all assumed he was, but he's talking about Leia and what she does in episode nine. 
with the redemption of her son. And when I read that, I was just like, oh, that's really kind of cool. Yeah, that, that whole exchange is really neat. What other gems are in there? But maybe, you know, it's like because this stuff is still stuff is still being made, it's still happening, they have to keep all those a secret. But man, that would that would be a meeting I'd like to be in. I can only imagine. <laughs> Bring some extra shirts. I'd be like, who are those two <laughs> giant tall guys in the corner? Why do they keep coming back with different shirts on? <laughs> Why are they they're breathing from pa- out of paper bags? It's really strange. Yeah. One of them has an oxygen tank. Is he okay? Well, and the whole thing, they, they're talking about the the emphasis on Leia, and it's it's a theme that keeps coming up uh, throughout the Art of Rise of Skywalker. Kind of understandably, though, but it's the Carrie Fisher passing away when she did, so unexpectedly, unfortunately. The whole kind of crazy thing that that threw Episode Nine into. And that really, yeah, that, I feel like that is really the thing that, made this all so difficult is you know like we've been saying it was it was already big and bold enough to try to outdo return of the jedi as far as ending goes and then you know for all for all these years we're building towards episode nine being leia's movie it's like carrie fisher passing away was bad enough on its own but <laughs> the fact that yeah it was kind of all leading to to her really made it uh not the easiest act to follow and I don't know. I've I've got to wonder too because the next the next time the the story picks up is when JJ's hired, and there's like we said, there's no mention at all of what Colin Trevorrow was doing with Duel of the Fates, and we don't even really talk about <laughs> that on the show too much. <laughs> Maybe one day we'll do a whole episode on his his weird script that came out. It doesn't. It's not really important. I mean, there were some people that were like wanted some of that art in the book but there's really no reason for it to be in the book because this is the art of the rise of skywalker and it's not really a book about some completely other different script by a different production group no it really is i mean it's it was a different it was episode nine but it was a different movie so that that makes total sense why that wouldn't be in here snoke's got that script in his uh in his Pickle jar. Yeah, so then we cut to yeah, September 12th, 2017. J.J. is coming back. The movie's not coming out in May anymore. It's coming out uh, December 2019. Like we said, he's got just a little over two years to do it all, to pull the whole thing off. He brings in everyone's favorite, Chris Terrio, <laughs> uh, Rick Carter, resident madman, literally insane person, is brought back in. And the art department is underway, and J.J. and Chris Terrios, they start writing. And then October 2017, when we were watching Monday Night Football, waiting for the final trailer for The Last Jedi, there's a video conference where the earliest plot bits are starting to be revealed. And we get stuff about a First Order abandoning super weapons uh, in favor of a fleet of star destroyers. Kylo Ren is the supreme leader. Poe has a bit of a checkered past and we get ideas of Sith temples. It's kind of wild. What stuff was in the script the longest. Some of that stuff seems like it was like, okay, that makes sense. That was in there the longest, but then other stuff. I don't know. I think I was just surprised that the Poe checkered past, like was there since the beginning and the fleet of, ships i don't know it's just it's always fascinating like what they think of first 
and what is a last minute addition. Cause in the end you, you really can't tell like if there's no, it's not necessarily obvious what's a, what's a new idea and what's an old idea. They all just, in the end, they're just ideas, but it's always fascinating to see what, what idea has been sitting around for two years versus something they came up with, you know, after they started filming. It's true because there's a lot of stuff when you go through the text of dealing with Poe's checkered past. Like it's bounty hunters for a while, it's spice runners for a while, and it's kind of like, was that a big deal? <laughs> Did we really need all this? Isn't he just one hell of a pilot, and now he's like one hell of a leader? <laughs> so, anyways, I so I it was always kind of cl- it was going to open up with a flashback with the duel between Luke and Leia in the past that was originally opening, and then it cuts to Kylo decimating a warrior gang, and he gets some sacred object, and then he brings it before the Oracle. And man, oh man, there's a lot of art and a lot of talk about this Oracle thing. (laughs) I think we need to have a moment of silence for the Oracle. Let's all observe a moment of silence for the Oracle that we never got to know. The Oracle tried so hard to be born into this world. There's, yeah, so much concept, so much talk. It was in the script. It was out of the script. It was in the script. It was out of the script. It was, what, on one planet and then another planet and then in water and all this. And we know they they built it. It was, what, the largest foam pour creature they've ever made. There were people inside of it in the water somehow. They filmed it, and we just hopefully someday we'll see it. It just seems like the the whole Mustafar part, seeing the concepts and the idea behind it, just it felt like it was a really cool sequence. And I think when we were talking about this the other day, like it almost feels like the beginning of Raiders, where it's like it could be this whole little adventure. As they get on, you know, go on the planet and they're going through the forest and they're fighting these guys and then they find the Oracle and the Oracle tells them where the, where the treasure is and all this. It's frustrating than what we got in the movie of just the, the you know, I, I get the point of trying to just move the story along. But some of these sequences just seem like I, I want to see them play out like as a, a real sequence and not just a light speed skip through the movie of, of just getting a a taste or a, just a little hint of this. And that was just one of the sequences that just seemed to jump out as like something that would have been really cool if it was a little bit longer, especially building up to the Oracle. But it feels like maybe that went away when Palpatine came in because the intro with Palpatine kind of feels like what the same sort of story beat the Oracle scene would have been of this lead up. And then they find this, mythical creature that kylo talks to and but it was replaced with him finding exegol and ultimately coming up to palpatine and getting information so it feels like that's what happened yeah and and it's weird too because it's like well okay well what does the oracle and kylo ren what do they talk about right like is that where he finds out about the dyad 
Does the oracle does the oracle tell him about Palpatine is still out there? And was Palpatine at one time supposed to be more like a zinger at the ending? Like he was only going to show up at the end and wasn't talking like to Kylo Ren in his mind and talking to Pride and talking to everybody the whole way through. Who knows? We'll never know. <laughs> that's the theme here. We will never, we will never know. And then, and then it's cool too because then it cuts to Poe, Finn, and BB-8. On this snowy, walled-in, first-order-occupied city, which later becomes... Kajimi. Kajimi, yes, thank you. And Poe presents an, an Enigma machine at some backdoor speakeasy, and then the First Order raids the place, and they make a hasty exit through canals, which all sounded really cool. And again, like you were saying, it's it's a very kind of Indiana Jones kind of opening with... You know, it's like Temple of Doom and Indy on at Club Obi Wan, and you're getting the the ending of a movie that you've never seen at the beginning of this movie, and then then it was going to cut to to Ray training with Leia and Hux flip sides, so that was always in there. He turns himself in in this version, though, probably flirts with everyone at the Resistance base. Kylo was going to congregate with a bunch of warlords and like a Godfather s scene. There was always the horse charge. So those were kind of some of the basic story beats they gave for things to get started. And Last Jedi wasn't even out in theaters at that point. And something that is still kind of distressing, like going through like all these story versions, and there's there's a bunch of them, and there's like at least three or four, but not one of them has Rose in a major role. <laughs> Which is unfortunate. Well, it's unfortunate, too, that there's there's no concept art of her either. I guess I could see the book following the movie, and if she's not in the movie that much, it makes sense not to have her in the art book, but it still feels kind of bad. I do <laughs> think it was crazy that the, the one time she is mentioned is that what it, the story was she was teaming up with Akbar's son to go do something. What ifs? Who knows? <laughs> Who knows? We'll never know. This was going on. Like we said, before The Last Jedi was even in theaters. So so then in October, so we're still in October. The Last Jedi is still not even out yet. We're introduced to a, a garbage planet filled with First Order rejects. And Finn might find a sibling there where he could learn uh, a weakness to First Order tech. Which, I don't know, I read that and I was kind of like, oh. That, I was thinking about like if Janna was like, yeah, I know how to bring the whole First Order down. But we're just on like this backwater planet, and we haven't been able to do anything with it. I've got this tech where I can immobilize all their ships or all their computer systems or something. I was thinking like, oh, and and also if if Jana was related to Finn, that could have been cool. That would have been a nice cap to Finn's story instead of him suddenly being force sensitive. I don't know. I'm getting. We're getting. <laughs> I need to stop. Just keep moving. Just like the movie, you just got to keep moving. Light speed, light speed skipping. Come on, let's skip to the next planet here. There's, 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 there's a very mysterious part in the description where they're, they're talking about a swampy pirate world. And then also the idea of going back to uh, Octo and caretaker assassins. Not quite sure where J.J. and Terrio were going with that. Yes. Well, don't they, in that part too, talk about how it turns into like a Vietnam movie and they're aren't they on a river and there's assassins and other like it's i swear it turns into that's when they start talking about 
Apocalypse Now or something. Doesn't Rick Carter start talking about Apocalypse Now? <laughs> and I could totally imagine that. I feel like anytime Rick Carter was in the room and he started going, like, what did he call it when Rick Carter would go off, like, bug out sessions or something? Oh, freak out sessions or something like that? Flip out sessions? Yeah. They, they start to establish that Finn is leading the horse charge and uh, Kylo is saved by some alien shaman and the resistance base is in the roots of a giant tree. And we start to find they start to finalize like the colorful festival and a speeder boat chase. There is a painting of the rebel base in the roots of a tree on one of the pages. I can't remember which page, but I was really digging that idea of just something as simple as just the scale of the trees, what they already had, if it just had that little extra out there-ness of being in the roots of a giant tree. I don't know. I think that would have been really cool without really drastically changing kind of where the rebel base was. But I don't know. I thought that was a cool idea and it looked cool in the, in the concept. There's an 18 inch alien directing traffic. Chewie's captured. There's a star destroyer factory. Now. Yeah. So now in November, December, things get really interesting and there's a great part and there's art to go along with it. Kylo Ren visiting the Jedi temple on Coruscant. So like, the Vader mass disintegrates and becomes like this cloud of like dust and it leads him to go to Coruscant, right? Yeah. And there's art of this on page 224 of Kylo's shuttle landing at the Jedi temple. It's a desolate ash covered Coruscant. The once bustling city streets now overrun by giant wolves and inside the abandoned Jedi temple, Kylo takes a central elevator down to the temple's deepest level. Now, this is just my opinion here. It's just my opinion. But if this was Exegol, and instead of Exegol, Kylo Ren went back to the Jedi temple, kind of where the story kind of began and was a f- major focus point for the first three movies in the Skywalker saga. And if all the stuff that happened on Exegol happened underneath the jedi temple and whatever sith area was underneath there that would have been really cool i mean in the end it is it's a subtle change because reading this description it's exactly kind of what happens at the beginning of kylo shows up at a big temple he takes an elevator down and he finds palpatine but just framing it on coruscant in the jedi temple which is, is something that we're familiar with from a lot of the story kind of takes the exact same progression of events and I don't know, it just kind of ties it all in a little bit better. Just the idea of seeing, you know, the once bustling center of the universe Coruscant, just seeing it all kind of what happened to it over the last 40 years would have just been great. And I like the, you know, we talk about like the Trevor thing, but the, the whole climax of the Trevor thing was this giant battle over Coruscant, which got a little ridiculous, but I like this idea a lot because it almost reminds me of when we went back to Tatooine and the Mandalorian and it's, it's what we're familiar with, but it's so very different and it shows you how much time has changed. And Well, and I'm all for Kylo Ren just fighting some, some space wolves. <laughs> so January, uh, 2018, the last Jedi is out and the three art departments in San Francisco, Santa Monica, and at Pinewood in the UK are all working full steam. There's new story changes. We're introduced to a giant snake and Ray's healing power. 
quote, haunted alien tells the resistance crew about the fleet of star destroyers. Uh, Babu Frick at this time used to clean star destroyer engines. That whole kind of storyline was really interesting to me of the idea because they kind of elaborate on it of the idea of these little aliens that have always been in the star destroyers cleaning their engines and that they know how to destroy the star destroyers because they actually they're in there. They live in there working, cleaning the engines. Like, I, I don't know. It's like JJ was going some, some wild places and I kind of wish he would have stayed in those wild places a little bit. Cause that was, I don't know. That was really fascinating to me. It's another overall theme in all these amazing pages of the, the story taking shape. It's like every single month there was basic themes of story beats that were always present, but things kind of kept changing and they weren't changing subtly. They were kind of changing in big ways that affected the overall story of how the good guys were going to win in the end. And like we said too, without ever hearing about Palpatine, it's it's a lot of ideas, I guess is what I'm saying that were constantly coming out and the clock was ticking on when they needed to start filming. And they were still throwing out, well, what if we did this? And what if we did that? And what if it's a bunch of little aliens? And what if what if Finn finds a family member on this garbage planet? And maybe the garbage planet people, they know how to do it. Well, it, and it's it's nice that the art books let you really do a, a good comparison of just the J.J. Abrams mindset and filmmaking process. And compare and contrast that with the Ryan Johnson filmmaking process, just with how much that art book, it is what the movie is because the movie was what the movie was kind of from the beginning. Cause he's much more of when he writes the script, he writes the movie he wants to see. It's almost, I guess you could almost say it's more of a, like Kirshner with empire of he shot the movie he wanted to see as opposed to Lucas who, shoots a bunch of stuff and finds the movie in the edit. And the art books kind of mirror that of, you know, I remember talking about when we went through the art of last Jedi book, how it was like, well, this is just concept art of what we saw in the movie because there was such a, a focus to that movie. And then comparing it to this one where it's the, it's the, yeah, the whole idea of just coming up with way more stuff than you could ever use and trying to pick and choose and whittle it down into what the ultimate end story and visuals are. Yeah. Cause there's all kinds of stuff even coming up with a sabotage device and Ray is talking to an elderly shipbuilder and there's like Poe Dameron and a bounty hunter cat lady. Where was the, I can't remember the part in the, in the story development too, where they had the idea of all the pilots showing up instead of all the ships showing up on the rebel base. Cause that's one of my favorite parts just in the book of art of just all these crazy star pilots they came up with. Yeah, it's it's amazing. There's a David Bowie, like Ziggy Stardust-looking pilot where it's... I've loved that idea, too, flipping through the book. And, yeah, the art is amazing of these pilots. And it's like that would have been a really neat idea of instead of a fleet of ships, an army of people, of aliens from around the galaxy. Yeah, and the idea of all these people showing up to help before the battle really kind of sells the idea of, yeah, there's 
all these people from around the world, around the galaxy, all these different shapes and sizes, they're all coming here to help. It's interesting because we got that in the base because there really was an amazing amount of variety in the creatures and droids and pilots and everything on the base. But just, yeah, the, the change of them not all being there at the beginning and, and kind of showing up at the end to show that the message was heard would have been really neat to see. There's stuff like, so the cat lady gives the heroes her ship, which is called the Spitfire. You get the sense that the Spitfire later evolved into Ochi's ship. The Ochi stuff is so confusing. And if we are four or five months away from filming, and Ochi's ship is, they say, like, in the book, like, they... Once they figured out it was Ochi and not the Spitfire from the Cat Lady, they had to base it on the ship that we saw in Force Awakens. Because, yeah, then by the, by March, their location scouting and Neil Scanlon's shop is up and going, and uh, May sets are being built. And yeah, and then in August, it begins filming. Like we said, they were they were always against the clock with this thing. And there's, there's a quote from Chris Terrio that's getting thrown around on, online a lot where he says, I've, it's on page 201 here, and he says, I've never rewritten a, a film as much as this one. It's like the tide. There's a new script every morning, but we just keep going at it and going at it, loosely thinking it's not good enough. It's never good enough. Luckily, the production team is so good that they can shift and adjust. We're course correcting as we go. We're trying things, and some things don't work, and some things aren't ambitious enough, and some things are overly ambitious Some things are too dense. Some things are too simple. Some things are just too nostalgic. Some things are too out of left field. We're finding our balance. Like like we say with all of this, the definition or your interpretation of that quote, I think, depends greatly on how you feel about the movie. It's either an inspirational quote or a cautionary tale. (laughs) It's, It's the light and the dark. The way I like to approach design or production design for a film is I always break it into two steps. The first phase is the aspirational vision. And that's why I try to you know, raise the bar as high as possible. And I try to create the vision that in a perfect world, if we had an unlimited budget and resources that we could obtain. And so that's the first part is you know, really try to set that goal. The second phase of it comes in once we have a script. And once we know exactly what the scenes are that are taking place in these sets, and then I start to really then dissect, okay, well, what is realistic in terms of what we can build, given our time and our budget? How do we actually take the aspirational vision and actually make it buildable and executable? And so you really have to separate the two. And so in my workflow now, I do have sort of the the first phase, which is the blue sky, and then the second phase, which is more thorough design. And they come hand in hand. Many times later on in the production, we will still try to do some blue sky work, exploration, if there's a new environment that's being called for in the script. But oftentimes, it will be a matter of compromising what that vision is. And so I'm always conscious of how do we execute something. Uh, I always have that in the back of my mind because I don't want to fall into a trap where I'm designing something that is unexecutable. And that's really important because as a production designer, you have to be conscious of all the different stages of production. Even though you may be focused on one part at one time in the schedule, I have to be aware like all the ripple effects that that set will have if I design it to this and it's approved you know, by the director uh, to build such and such. If we can't build that, then I've kind of failed in my job. 
And so I have to be aware of that because ultimately I'm responsible for all of that. All right, so let, let's pick some of our favorite pieces of art throughout the Art of Rise of Skywalker book. Because like we said, no matter what your opinion on the film, you can't deny the amazing artwork that was done. And there are some beauties in this book. Gabe, what would you pick as one of your favorite pieces of art in this book? I'm going to cheat a little bit, and I'm going to pick my first one from the Last Jedi section. <laughs> it counts. It's in this book. But it's in this book is uh, page 29, the Luke emerging version 03, which is the, the really wide painting of the part in Last Jedi where Luke stands in front of the Adats and Kylo's shuttle. Mm, 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 mm. What's your first choice? I do love all the stuff on Pasana. I love all the festival. I love the Pasana aliens. I love the Pasana babies. <laughs> and for some reason, I've got a real weakness on page 90. It's a full page spread of a little Pasana child. And he's like got like a frying pan and a little bowl of something. It looks like he's he's making some, some ramen noodles or some mac and cheese or something. And he's just kind of looking up at you with a little like he's got like a Bert, Bert and Ernie thing of hair on the top of his head. He's just kind of looking at you like, what? So what? I'm making soup. Elephantine Alien version 08 by uh, Jake Lunt Davies. I love it. All right. My next one is page 156, the two-page centerfold spread of Kylo talking to the Oracle, which is great. And if you turn the page, there's another good Oracle painting. And there's also a bonus, which I actually didn't notice till just now, is Rose Warren painted skulls of aliens, and there's a Kit Fisto skull <laughs> on a stick. It was supposed to be some crazy, like, skulls on Mustafar or something? Yeah. Yeah, Chris Rose Warren. I never knew I wanted to see Kit Fisto's skull. Uh, I'm going to cheat a little bit, and I'm going to give a couple overall prizes for pages 100 and 101 where page 100 is all an exploration of Claude. I believe in miracles. Claude with a K, uh, K-L-A-D. Uh. The many forms Claude could have taken. He was a bit more octopus for a while. It's kind of Borgullet-ish for a while. There's like a six-eyed, like marshmallow head Claude up in the corner. And then page 101 could be my favorite concept art piece in the entire book, maybe, of Bulio in a little gunner station. It looks like on the Falcon or something. It's Bulio Gunner 05, again by Jake Lunt Davies. Bulio's like turning around, looking at you, just smiling. And I love it so very much. What could have been with happy Bulio? Poor Bulio. He just wanted to help out and smile while shooting things. It could be Bulio's brother, Coolio. It's true. We could be seeing something from the future. Coolio could show up in anything, anytime. It could be working the gunner station on a ship, and Coolio could blow up like a some kind of bad guy ship, and he could be like, that one's for Bulio. And the whole crowd would cheer. People would be dancing in the streets. 
There'd be a parade. It could it could happen. I would give an honorable mention to Jake Lunt Davies. Uh, page 106 drew a little picture of two Pisana people kissing with their tentacles intertwined in each other. And we didn't get to see that on screen, and I'm a little mad about it. Yeah, well, <laughs> we always say this. If this was if, – if Rise of Skywalker came out in the late 80s, we would have an Aki Aki Saturday morning cartoon to watch. And, and I'm kind of sad that we don't. <laughs> Getting wacky wacky with the Aki Aki every Saturday morning. There's still time. There's Disney Plus. It could happen. That, yeah, that's true. Disney Plus needs shows, and we need Aki Aki cartoons. <laughs> the wacky wacky adventures of the Aki Aki. It could happen. I'm ready. We'll write it. We've got time. Call me on Wednesday. I will have an entire season written for you by Friday. I'm putting it out there. All right, what? Well, let's do a couple more. What? What would? Uh, what, what's your next pick for favorite art? I'm trying to pick something that's not the Oracle, but I can't stop picking Oracle ones. The two Oracle paintings on two thirty-eight. They they. If you squint your eyes, I feel like I'm watching the movie with those two, and I think that's why I'm drawn to them. Uh, the top one, especially, which is what just Oracle by uh, Voy, is pretty cool because. You're like you look at it, and you're like, "Oh, look! It's Kylo looking at the Oracle." But if you look up in the distance, you can see like the Tower of Vader's castle, which is pretty cool. I love this Oracle stuff so much. <laughs> Will we ever? Why? Why can't we see it? What was the What was the Oracle's voice like? Was it subtitled? Oh man, I don't know. Was it weird? Was it something completely unexpected? Was it like, "Hello, Kylo"? <laughs> I hope so. I wouldn't be surprised. I wouldn't be surprised. We never, we never thought we would see the sandstorm from Return of the Jedi. We didn't even know about the lightsaber being built scene. As long as we stay alive 20 or 30 more years, we'll get to see the footage of the Oracle someday. If there ever is another Star Wars celebration, they just have a panel and just be like, we're going to show you the Oracle stuff. They'll need wristbands for that. So I'm, My next one is an odd pick, but it's one that I'm weirdly really drawn to when I was flipping through the book. First got it when I first got the book and I was just looking at the pretty pictures. It's when I was like, oh, that's really cool. It's on page 172. Kylo Ren Sanctuary version 45 by Andre Wallen. And I don't know. There's just something about this illustration. I just love it with Kylo dead center here and the, the white walls. And it. he looks like he's in like a church something i didn't it's it's just a really cool illustration and i love kylo's white room and they they talk about it in the book like the development of kylo's white room and kind of making it an homage to 2001 but there's just something so cool about all these illustrations of the white room i don't i love it and that one in particular is my favorite well that one would make a great poster yeah that reminds me of something i i had forgot to bring up but that was kind of blowing my mind a little bit was a couple pages before that on 169, just the concepts of Kylo interrogating Chewie and just how intense of a scene that would have been in the movie to get to see those two together and just seems like such a missed opportunity for some drama. Well, and especially with the redemption of Ben and his changing his mind eventually, if he would have had a moment alone with Chewie, if if he came into that room and saw Chewie chained up, what would he have done? 
I mean, it's it is kind of a shame that the two of them never got a, a moment together. I didn't really dwell on it until now, seeing that that somebody was dwelling on it, and they had these paintings of it that it was like, oh yeah, you're right. They were on the the Star Destroyer roughly at the same time, and that really would have made Chewie getting captured make a lot of sense, and and that would be be a heavy moment. It's kind of. You get choked up just looking at the pictures. <laughs> keep keep it together. Yeah, I know. I got to turn the page. Keep pick pick one more uh, standout art in in this amazing book of art. I really like the the second to last image. I guess it's technically page two fifty five of just the kind of Return of the Jedi hangar scene, but with Kylo. And I like that you know in Jedi the troopers are all looking at Vader, and it's kind of a triumphant kind of thing and this kylo's walking by himself and the troops aren't looking at him and it's kind of got that very kylo ren like loneliness to it yeah that was an andre wallen one as well that guy he knows his kylo ren well i gotta go with my my last pick page 221 death star fight 1c by andre brockbank because i i look at that and it it reminds me of like the Ralph Macquarie portfolios of big framing size, just art you could put on a wall. And I think the fight on top of the Death Star between Ray and Kylo probably still could be one of my favorite parts of the film. And there's just something so very Star Wars art about that one piece right there. I just, it, it echoes the revenge of the Sith with the, the lava on Mustafar and, and I like how small they are compared to the, the big wave coming in and symbolism there in that moment. And bravo. That would look nice hanging on one side of your living room and then a concept from Revenge of the Sith hanging on the other side of your living room. A dyad, if you will. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like we said, the art of the Rise of Skywalker, it's, it depends greatly on your own point of view. <laughs> Like we said in the beginning, you, you but you can't deny it. The, the the work inside the book, it's absolutely gorgeous. If you've been on the fence about getting it, don't be. You need to have this book in your collection. If you have the other Art of Star Wars books, I, this is just as essential as any of them. It's fascinating. It's gorgeous. It's amazing. And uh, Phil Sostak as always, did an absolutely incredible job putting it together. Yeah, the art of books are, I don't know, they're essential. If you like Star Wars, you should have the art books. If you like art, you should have the art books. If you like making of movie stuff, you should have the art books. There's just, regardless of your feelings on the movie, the art book, yeah, it's it's a must-have. I'm always just, I love to see just the process of how they make these movies, and I, yeah, and I love kind of going off in tangents in my mind, kind of imagining the different ways the story could have gone and and the different visuals that we could have seen up on the screen.
You know, I think um, that's a real critical part of the design process, that we have to ground our designs in reality. And I learned a lot of this basically working with George, where he insisted that even though, you know, many people may think Star Wars is a science fiction genre film, he never considered it that. He always thought of it as a period film, as a documentary. And we were just happened to be in another world, another place filming this. And that was his approach to the designs. And when I knew that or heard that from him, it completely transformed how I approached the designs for a Star Wars film, which is basically, we're really taking reality and just twisting a little bit. But 80% or 90% of it is anchored in our reality. And I think that part is so critical because it's really looking at common objects in an uncommon way, seeing it in a new context, or changing the scale, because it can turn the ordinary into something extraordinary. And by doing that, what you're doing is you're taking a fantastic design and rooting it in reality so that the audience can believe it. It doesn't become so fantastical where they look at it and they start to question things like, well, how does that work? What is it doing? Because the minute the audience starts to do that, you've kind of lost them. Star Wars radio-controlled R2-D2. Two 9-volt and two C alkaline batteries not included. You can make R2-D2 move, beep, and flash his light by wireless radio control. Hey, let me try it. You can make R2 move forward. Look out, Dad! Backward, turn and beep. Hurry, turn, Dad! Radio-controlled R2-D2. New from the Star Wars collection by Kenner. This is Vanessa Marshall. I play Harrison Dulan, Star Wars Rebels, and you're listening to Blast Points with Jason and Gabe. May the Force be with you always. And these last points, too accurate for sand people. Only Imperial stormtroopers are so precise. So Apple Podcast Reviews, iTunes, whatever you want to call it, you know what the deal is when you're done listening to this episode or any episode. If you listen on something Apple, go over there, write something nice, and we'll read your review on an upcoming show. And it helps the show in those Exegol, Sith cultists, Snoke in a Jar, Oracle head coming up out of water ways iTunes reviews are the spider oracle on top of the internet of the giant baby, or the giant baby of the internet. It's how Kylo Ren knows about Blast Points, because the iTunes reviews are growing out of the internet's baby head, is what I'm trying to say. This, this podcast sounds really good. Maybe I'll listen to it. <laughs> sounds like my kind of thing. But after that, check out our website, BlastPointsPodcast.com where Use the Forks recipes are back. Ooh! Check out our Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and if you're on the Facebook, sign up for the Super Chill Group. It's always a good time, and it's Blast Points 24-7. And we're doing weekly, for now, while during this crazy time, we're doing weekly Blast Points Chill Group movie-watching parties on Saturday nights where we've done Return of the Jedi and we've done Rogue One. And the Saturday after this comes out, we're doing 
episode four, A New Hope, on Saturday night. So you want to be a part of the chill group so you can watch A New Hope with all your new best friends over there on the Blast Points Chill Group. And if you want to support the show another way, you can sign up for our Patreon, where we are still doing weekly Clone Wars episodes. We just had episode seven seven which i don't remember th- i don't remember the name of it a dangerous debt Ooh. yes a dangerous debt with ahsoka and not raffi rafa <laughs> and her sister chase <laughs> trace trace <laughs> but they are chased in the episode yeah. so. <laughs> if you, you want to hear jason and i mispronounce people's names Definitely sign up for the Patreon and, uh, yeah, get some bonus stuff and and support the show. But that about wraps up episode number 213 here, The Art of the Rise of Skywalker. We're going to have another bonus episode later this week. It's going to be a really good one, folks. (laughs) Something real special coming again later this week. But as for this, uh, thank you, everyone, for listening. Thank you. Bye-bye. May the force be with you. Goodbye, old friend. May the force be with you. is what works for the story. Um, It could be the coolest thing, but if people don't know what it is or how it works in five seconds, it doesn't matter. May the force be...